Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast. My name is Natalie Nahai, and in the second series, I'll be exploring our relationship with the living environment. These 10 intimate conversations will touch upon everything from psychology, sustainability, and human behavior, to political and economic systems, and the narratives we inhabit to make meaning of our place in this world. Join me each week as we explore these topics and more. And if you like the show, please do rate or review it as it helps to reach new ears. For additional resources and to find out more, visit natalinahai.com forward slash the hive podcast or tweet to me at natalinahai. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the hive podcast. In today's episode, I'll be speaking with James Glave, an author, editor and communications professional focused on the low carbon economy. As principal of Glave Communications, he supports a wide range of companies, organisations and governments committed to decarbonisation. He's also a co-founder and former communications director for Clean Energy Canada and a senior fellow and lead communications advisor for Future 500 in San Francisco. He's currently working on the editorial team producing the REN21 Global Renewables Status Report and is leading outreach on the BC Energy Step Code, an innovative building regulation that's transforming the built environment in British Columbia. James also hosts 3things.energy, a fantastic podcast exploring leading energy solutions to climate change, which I highly recommend you check out if you want to dive deeper into some of the topics that we'll be touching on today. So thank you so much, James, for joining me in conversation. It's a real pleasure to have you on. And I thought we'd kick off by asking if you can tell us a bit about how you came to be in your current role, focusing on growing low carbon economies. So I'm originally from Canada. I grew up here and went to school here. And my background professionally is in uh, media, particularly magazine editing. I was a magazine editor in various roles uh, after moving to the States in about uh, 1995, I worked for Wired uh, Magazine's mm. online uh, division, Wired.com, and then went on to Outside uh, Magazine, the uh, adventure, uh, literary adventure magazine. And that was in first San Francisco and then Santa Fe. Um, and I became a U.S. citizen in the 10 years I was down there and met my wife and we had a, uh, two children. Um, and so uh, fast forward to 2005, I moved, we moved back to Canada uh, to be closer to my family when we had uh, little ones. And I uh, just became more interested in the whole sustainability and climate change conversation. Um, you know, as a journalist, you know, you're always very, very curious. And I was sort of started to fixate on what needs to happen? Um, why are the decisions so difficult? Mm. Um, what What is really kind of going on out there? And, and uh, what, you know, what is the opportunities around that? So I began sort of shifting my work to make that more my beat and profiling people that were change makers and were active on uh, climate change and so forth. And gradually, eventually shifted from writing about people that were... Uh, changing the world to wanting to do it uh, mm. myself. So, <laughs> so that's when I kind of made a jump to the NGO world and I co-founded uh, Clean Energy Canada, which was and still is a, a, a national nonprofit that 
is sort of working to accelerate the shift to the low carbon economy. I, I did that for five years. I was a communications director and then um, I left that to go out on my own to do what I'd been doing there for others and um, US and, and Canadian organizations and clients and so forth. Mm, fascinating. And from a personal perspective, I'm just really curious um, when it came to reorienting your career from writing about people doing this kind of work to being someone who more proactively, practically does this kind mm-hmm. of work. How did you how did you grapple with that change? Well, um, you know, it's a really interesting thing. I was, you know, I think journalists tend to be a pretty skeptical slash borderline cynical bunch. <laughs> Um, you know, everybody is trying to sell you something and everybody's driving an agenda. And I was it sort of applied that same lens, that kind of, I don't know, you might call it a bullshit detector filter <laughs> uh, to 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 that whole other world of advocacy. And and I, I was like, OK, who's, you know, uh, you know, had a very kind of at the time, probably pretty cynical take on it. Like there's something there's a real story here. What's what's going on behind this? And I just kind of gradually got an education um, when I was, you know, forced to dig in and look at the evidence of what was happening and um, what was driving it and what were the biggest growing sources and um, and uh, why it uh, was going so long uh, um, ignored. And I just kind of became personally engaged and, and passionate around that. I, I went from that sort of disconnected, dispassionate to uh, more personally uh, involved and and it was a really a great moment for for me. I mean, I don't know if it was an actual moment. It was more of a, an evolution, but I, I definitely felt better at the other end of it. Mm. Okay, so so can you tell us a bit about what decarbonization is? What is growing a low carbon economy? How does it work? Yeah, great question. So decarbonization is kind of a bit of a mouthful of syllables, but it, it's essentially refers to this process of transitioning and ultimately transforming. Uh, energy systems um, so that we continue to have access and do the things that we love to do and enjoy getting around our communities, uh, staying living comfortably, um, but but without releasing greenhouse gases uh, into the atmosphere. So it's essentially a, you know, as the word suggests, it's taking the carbon or the carbon dioxide uh, pollution out of our economies, out of our uh, transportation, out of our cars, out of our industries, uh, and and replacing them with uh, with other alternatives that that don't contribute to climate change. Hmm. And how how do you find that working? With, for instance, obviously there's certain things that we can do it more readily than other things. With, so for instance, um, cars, motorbikes. Yeah, I know that right. where I'm living in Barcelona, there's lots of scooters as there are in the states now and in the UK and in Canada. Um, what about things like flights? Are there certain things that we need to be searching for different solutions? Sure. Well, at a very high level, I've sort of got realized that there's three things that generally need to happen, which is the the genesis of the podcast that you mentioned, and thank you for the shout out earlier, <laughs> uh, three things dot energy. And, and they're kind of very systemic, broad, sort of high level things that, that really need to be where we need to be putting our priorities to, to, mm. to make this transition. And, and really, the first one is, you know, what I call clean the grids, which is essentially uh, take all of our, our electricity uh, grids, um, power plants, and those that are uh, running on fossil fuels, 
really we should be transitioning those, uh, turning those off and uh, powering them down and, and, uh, and accelerating the shift away from, um, in the U.S. right now, still, still a lot of coal and uh, increasingly natural gas mm. uh, electricity uh, production to non-emitting sources. We're also going to need to increase uh, dramatically the amount of that clean electricity that we produce. Um, because we're going to be increasing uh, the demand in other areas. And we can't afford to keep wasting uh, energy as well. So that mm-hmm. the second thing is erased, erase energy waste, which is this, we waste an enormous amount of energy that we produce through just inefficiencies in the systems, leaky homes, uh, vehicles that uh, consume more energy than they need to. Um, even back in the days when we had uh, incandescent light bulbs, most mm-hmm. of that energy was not um, light, it was, it was heat giving off uh, into the room. So, so the second is getting, getting our efficiency straight. And the third, just very briefly, is electrify everything. And essentially that is what you mentioned as well, the, the, uh, the vehicles and so forth. Anything that currently runs on a motor that uses fossil fuels and vehicles is just one. I mean, imagine the whole spectrum, trains, trucks, uh, eventually ships. Mm-hmm. Um, and replace that out with an electric motor um, and batteries that can be charged from clean and renewable sources. And really, those are kind of the three uh, cornerstones of what needs to happen. And in terms of making these things change, where do you think the responsibility lies? Or probably not just in one place, but how do you think that starts to divide in terms of individual responsibility, organizational responsibility, political, economic, etc.? Because there's a lot of different scripts running at the same time people mm-hmm. wanting different things for different reasons yeah uh so th- it, these are things that are so profoundly big and the current models that we have are so deeply entrenched that really this isn't something that we can change the level of the individual there are ways we as individuals can participate to help drive those shifts mm-hmm. but really we're talking about the level of of the, the whole economy and that's the realm of policy and of governments. And so I've, you know, I went through this uncomfortable shift in my own evolution we were talking about a moment ago mm. where, you know, I wanted to like spread the word and get my neighbors uh, engaged on, you know, how we can make a difference. And really that uh, whole kind of like, I want to start a citizen movement to drive positive change. It, it's just not going to happen at the scope and at the scale and at the speed that, that needs to happen now. Mm. It's, it's really, we have to kind of change the whole system at once. And so my big emphasis is on really trying to use those levers of government um, and really kind of try to uh, support governments and policymakers and politicians who are serious about tackling um, these things because it's only through using those uh, that, that, that there's broad policy changes that shift the whole system in at once is is really the kind of the scale we need. So how does one go about that sort of large scale rapid shift? What needs to happen for that to 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 come about? How many pressure groups need to apply, you know, their own stresses onto the current system to get it to change? Yeah. Um, well. Yeah. Exactly. Is I think the. There's been a huge body of work about why humans are not wired to tackle this issue. Uh, mm. and, and, and mostly it comes back to we're just, we don't respond well to existential distant threats. Yes. Uh, and there's, there's a whole realm of other concerns. I mean, those who uh, politically self-identify as conservatives 
Um, it's in their, 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 their core belief system to mistrust uh, government and or, you know, to, to, um, to, to not place faith in large government uh, shifts and, and organizations, but really that's what this requires. And so mm-hmm. there's a big chunk of society, and particularly speaking about the American, uh, America, is, uh, they, they've, they've, it's become a politicized issue. It's something that's owned by the left even though there are so many aspects of it that would appeal to the right. So um, it's, it's challenging. The, 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 it's resulted in this vacuum of information, of knowledge, of active denial. Uh, so, you know, getting back to your question, we really need what, you know, the, 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 the strongest metaphor is the World War II level of mobilization, mm-hmm. where, yes. you know, um, the president pulled the top car companies into... Uh, his office, and he said, "You're not making cars anymore. You're making tanks and uh, and fighter air, aircraft." And that was that. They just changed. They said, "You've got to do it by next week." That you know, that there will be no 1940, you know, Buick, whatever. So um, that's an example of you know a, a very pressing threat that was a clear and present danger to the safety and security of the United States. And and it, it's it's true. There was Pearl Harbor. There was Hitler had you know marched across most of Europe. So. We don't have that equivalent um, mm. drive or imperative to act, and yet we really, really need to. So we go on, you know, uh, seeking our, um, you know, uh, news from the same sources that we've we've always uh, found it from, and we've politicized this issue and push it far, far down on our our priority list. So I don't have the answers. That is the key question, um, but I know that we will probably need some kind of a very large scale uh, event to really kind of focus our action on on this issue. Uh, something of a Pearl Harbor scale in terms mm. of uh, a wound on the on the on the national psyche that can be clearly uh, linked to this uh, to this phenomenon. That's so difficult, isn't it? This, this um, the psychological barriers to being able to a confront the enormity of the challenge that we face, yeah, and b to pull through enough mental resources, emotional resources to to start to tackle this in any meaningful way. Um, yeah, so many people. I mean, the, the other th- thing is that we're not only short term thinkers; we can't think, you know, beyond our immediate. But so many people. I mean, there are some profound inequities in our our mm. civilization right now. Uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, racial uh, ju- inequity and, and class inequity. And there's so many people that are just struggling just to get mm. by that it's just they can't wrap their head around um, thinking about how can we direct our just our emotional energy towards solving this, supporting this, speaking up for action and solutions. It's just it's just a real it's a real struggle. I wonder if this is also why, for instance, the school strikes that we're seeing happening all across the world now, why why it's this cohort of people, those who are young who don't yet have the other more immediate short term concerns like putting food on the table, uh, having rent or mortgage, whatever, that these are people who actually are the ones that can be most vocal because they experience the situation the most keenly. That's the most present danger to their future. You know, Natalie, I am I am more inspired and excited by the school strikes movement than I, I have been by anything. <laughs> yeah, um, me too. <laughs> I, 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 I just, it is such an enormous 
injection of hope and um, energy and the, the fact that it is spreading globally. Uh, mm. You know, just a few days from now, there's going to be another uh, global strike. My, my two teens are going to be participating. Amazing. Uh, and I'm, uh, I'm super proud of them and I'm just trying not to push it on them, you know, like, <laughs> hey, it's all you. This is, you know, you, you all, you know, I can, I can help support any way I can, but, I, you know, you're all driving this one. So... Uh, it is super exciting because it truly is coming from a grassroots movement. It's not a environmental organization that's, you know, top down leading this campaign. It's, it's completely self uh, organized. And it's um, you, you can tell that there's when you see the interviews with the with the youth uh, who, are, who are talking about why they're going out on strike. It, there's just an enormous you can see them that they're getting it. Yeah. And uh you know, so much of our society is, is disengaged. Uh, there's just, you know, it's such a, it's such a great sign of hope. Mm. I wonder how that will translate to political pressure. I mean, obviously, um, Greta Thunberg was invited to speak at the UN. She's spoken in front of huge cohorts of people about the subject. But also it's kind of, well, I wonder how much of it is, in some senses, greenwashing. People saying that they're taking this issue seriously because it's coming from younger mouths. And how much of it's actually going to impact upon the legislations that need to be made in order to make the changes that that we need? Well, that's that's why I'm so hopeful, because historically, I mean, you look at any jurisdiction anywhere in the world and and youth are one of the most underrepresented at the ballot box um, mm. consistently. Uh, and it's 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 dispiriting because they do have the most at stake and there's many reasons many many um, younger people feel disenfranchised they, they feel that the political system is fundamentally broken and their response is to opt out um, and you know there's a lot of stereotypes about younger people who are more interested in partying or the latest mm. Ariana Grande release or what have you but I, you know you see it in this uh, these young people uh, they are committed, and I know that they are going to carry that commitment forward to uh, into the next elections. So in what ways do you see our current systems contributing to the problem or exacerbating it, and in some cases even promoting the destruction of our environment? Well, our economic systems do not account for the damage caused to the ecosystems um, by the things that we make and buy and use. So uh, you know, the, uh, economists call that externalities, essentially, when I, you know, drive my car, you know, I buy my gas and so forth, but the price I'm paying at the pump doesn't reflect the damage to uh, public health uh, from pollution and from uh, and to the atmosphere mm -hmm. through contributing to climate change. So, um, and people are very price sensitive. So, you know, you see a lot of news stories around the summertime, pain at the pump. Oh, my God, the gas price is going up again, you know. Uh, and so we're kind of really detached from the actual costs mm. of the things that we buy and do because we don't understand there's a, there's a larger tale of impacts beyond the initial purchase. Um, so that is a really uh, troubling one because we're, we're very price sensitive. Um, and, um, you know, for example, only 57% of Americans currently believe that climate change is primarily the result of human activity. Mm. Uh, so I know that, and here we are in 2019, and, you know, we've been talking about this for a long time, yeah. and there's still just, um, you know, people just, they don't get it. Um, they either don't trust that information or it's coming from the wrong places. So, um, so that's really, a, a, you know, and couple that with 
there's enormous investment in the current model, the current yes. carbon intensive system. Mm -hmm. You know, there are powerful lobbies that don't want anything to change because it represents a threat to their business. And there are political leaders who are beholden to those interests because of the, um, uh, you know, lobbying and, and political campaign donations and so forth. So that is, you know, it's there and you can't deny it, it that it's a factor. Uh, and it is helping to reinforce this, uh, this this status quo so i'm just curious because this is something that i ask myself a lot for the people who are in the positions where they're making their money their livelihood from these destructive systems and we're all complicit in some way well i would say most of us maybe not all of us are complicit in this in some way but say for instance when you know that what you're doing is deforesting an area and killing loads of species like if you know that and you've got that on your hands what do you think the psychological bind is that means that people can't see if they're in this position that actually they're not if they deplete the earth too much and we end up with catastrophe they're not going to have a business because there won't be any planet to have the business on i know it sounds a bit odd maybe to put it in that stark frame but um to me it feels like a really clear you know if we don't have a planet that is habitable <laughs> We're not going to have an economy. Yeah, but if I don't have a job, then I can't put food on the table for my family. I don't have a shelter of my head. And, um, you know, I'm not going to be able to get to sleep at night. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, I, again, it's, the, you know, it's that hierarchy of needs, uh, you know, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I, you know, is, is placed very strongly in this. You know, you take f care of the most important things first. And for many people where there are no alternatives realistically available to them, that's what they go to do. And so they, I think, is an enormous amount of guilt and, and, and worry that, um, that often manifests itself publicly as backlash and anger Mm. Um, about, you know, a certain species at risk that's been the, the basis of a decision to, to, to stop deforestation in a particular area or, you know, that has an economic impact on people's lives that's real. So, you know, I think that's really where the just transition movement um, steps in. Uh, and up in here in Canada, uh, where I'm living right now, there's a uh, the government's just announced a um, a packet or or a, a task force was put together to make recommendations about how to transition coal uh, dependent communities where there's coal fired power. It's being phased out. How do you how do we take care of these people? Mm. Um, and I think people need to see a, a space for themselves in this sort of, you know, sexy, cool, low carbon future where we're all driving Teslas. If, if people don't see a space for themselves in that in that vision, they're not going to support it. They don't, they, they, there's, they, you know, they can't get themselves to that place. Um, and so that's really that kind of whole fairness um, and equity uh, needs to be foundational to, uh, to creating that. And do you think that there are certain changes to the economic system that need to happen in order to allow for that kind of shift on a communities-based level or on a jobs-based level? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, fundamentally, we need policies in place that begin the shift by rebalancing the market um, so that cleaner solutions are more cost-competitive um, with not-so-clean ones. And that will gradually start to shift and hopefully start to quickly shift. But at the same time, we really need to put in supports underneath that uh, for those who are going to be, um, you know, essentially their jobs are going to be going away. There's, there's, there's definitely going to be impacts and losses. Uh, and we just have to have a, uh, a system set up to catch those people so that they 
are have access to retraining so they can retire early or whatever whatever different uh, array of options needs to be made available because for sure we need to completely transform our energy system and there mm -hmm. are going to be um, companies that make a lot of money doing that and there are going to companies they're going to be companies that, that that do not survive that shift so where do you see some of the greatest positive impacts being achieved for decarbonisation for some of this transition that we're talking about? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I have to say, when you want to look at a story of a complete turnaround, it's China. Uh, oh, China is a really, a really exciting and interesting story. It <laughs> is, um, you know, about a decade ago, they, you know, the, the, the ruling party leader said, we are declaring war on pollution. Hmm. And um, we all see the stories and whenever somebody says, oh, I'm not going to buy a hybrid because there's a new coal plant opening every week. It's just um, China is outpacing the entire world on investments in efficiency, uh, in renewables, in wind and solar, uh, electric vehicles. There's like 20 different electric vehicle manufacturing companies wow. in China. Uh, Tesla is just a small uh, part of that landscape. So. Uh, and so it's an amazing story because they, you know, the party leaders were concerned that there would be a revolution on their hands because mm. people couldn't go outside mm. uh, and walk in a park because the pollution was so bad. So they are going full on. Uh, and that is fascinating to watch. It dwarfs all other areas, California, you name it. So it's extraordinary because um, also the, the whole thing of, again, the psychological element of am I personally effective? does this have an impact on my day-to-day -day living? Of course it does. And yes. so it's interesting that one of the most populous countries in the world is now having to, to, to do such a massive transformation. But of course, economically, they maybe they can afford to do that because politically they have a system which allows for that kind of decision to be made without much of a challenge would that be fair yes to say? <laughs> that's fair to say i mean yes it is a totalitarian regime we yeah. can <laughs> we can name that for sure and there isn't that you know pesky democracy and public process to get through um you know i mean if you look at an example in the united states where there was a off um you know a, a wind farm proposed for many years off of cape cod off of nantucket and um you know, wealthy property owners along mm. the shore fought that for so many years, eventually the, the proponent gave up because even though there would be just these tiny little dots like the size of a rice grain on the horizon of, of wind turbines, they didn't want to see that. So um, so there is public process. We do have to account for um, individual engaging with individual communities around the impacts of, of generation. Um, you know, particularly since we need to ramp up wind and solar so much, but there are so many, there are also great success stories. California, oh my God, California is really up there with, with China in terms of uh, just getting it done. There's enormous um, deep uh, commitment uh, by, that, by the state of California to uh, completely do all of the three things we talked about. They're, they're going gangbusters to phase out um, um, all uh, greenhouse gases on their grids. They're going to be carbon neutral by 2045 and they're on track yeah. to do it so um that's a great example i mean that is a democracy it's uh the the former governor uh governor brown um really kind of you know before he left he he set out a whole bunch of um rules and um legislation so that is a really a powerful example of uh of leadership uh certainly in the united states mm. do you think we have that much time <laughs> until 2045 uh, to go carbon neutral. Right, right, right. Well, I mean, the latest thinking out of the IPCC was the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change 
really, we, we have about 12 years mm. to put in um, the kind of deep policy uh, change that to, to really transformational work uh, to prevent from going past that, that two degrees threshold. Uh, and, you know, two degrees of warming uh, beyond that, we start to really unlock some uh, pretty, pretty nasty uh, feedback loops and so forth, methane releases and so on. So that's the goal. That's where we need to get to. Um, and uh, yeah, we don't have a lot of time to get there. So um, I don't know. Your guess is as good as mine about um, whether we're going to be able to put the motivation and the awareness and suddenly build that mass support. Um, where it's going to come from. So, but I'm not just for the record putting my own bank in some kind of a technology breakthrough. Um, a lot of people, I think, in the back of their head are sort of uh, hardwired to think, well, you know, somebody's going to invent something mm. that's going to fix this. And I, I just don't think we can count on that. I think it's going to take a huge shift in, uh, in priorities. And again, I, I fear that will come with some from some large event, but I, I don't know. That's the worst case mm. scenario. <laughs> it's interesting. I think it's this kind of sort of messianic vision of, of salvation that we seem to kind of be more comfortable with, the sense of, well, I'm going to just deny that I'm going to take any responsibility and just hope for the best that someone else will fix this problem and that it'll be a, a panacea of some kind. Um, do you think with the issues of carbon sequestration, so for instance you know, planting loads of trees. I know that people are funding lots of different charities now who are doing this. Mm -hmm. So trees.org is one, there's you know various different ones. Or those organizations that are actually supporting indigenous populations who have long been the stewards mm -hmm. of very biodiverse ecosystems. Do you think that that approach also can contribute to the changes that we need at the scale that we need them? It's It certainly can. Um, I, I mean, for sure, um, California, for example, is not going to get to carbon neutrality unless it plants a lot of trees. Mm. But the challenge now is that with hotter summers, those trees might burn two years later um, after they've been planted, and then you've lost that whole mitigation, that whole impact. So um, it's, you know, those are certainly, an, uh, indigenous knowledge should absolutely inform um, any um, any policy package that would that would get us there. They, they need to be, those voices need to be represented mm. for sure. Um, you know, but, but it's, it's sort of, it's big, it's big, big pieces, you know, um, uh, certainly a price on carbon is, is, would be helpful, but it's also regulations that work away in the background that nobody really sees or knows about or cares about. So, um, if you can indulge me, um, in one little anecdote that yes, illustrates <laughs> this beautifully, um, a friend of mine, uh, an energy economist, um, up here in Canada, Mark Jackard, he's, uh, he's a, a, a brilliant economist who focuses on climate change and uh, he's on the IPCC and he asks a question whenever somebody says, well, what should I do? Should I make sure my tires are inflated? Should I buy a bike? He, said, he throws the question back and he says, so let me, let me put it to you, Natalie, what did you do personally to uh, fix the hole in the ozone layer? Did you stop buying hairspray or, well, uh, let me answer it for you. You probably did nothing. <laughs> 
That's an example of a, a global threat that was solved through regulation. Basically, governments got together and they said, well, we can't make these chemicals anymore because they are removing, um, you know, uh, they, they're destroying and degrading mm. the Earth's ozone layer, which is protecting us from a high ultraviolet radiation level. So mm. they all get together and they said, we're going to stop making them. And so you couldn't buy a fridge anymore with those chemicals in it. You couldn't buy hairspray anymore or shaving cream or anything in an aerosol can. You still buy hairspray, you could still buy shaving cream. It just didn't have that chemical in it. So mm. really it just kind of got legislated out of existence, out of the market. And it's a, sim it's a similar thing. Now, the energy system is much more complicated than hairspray, uh, and there's a lot more invested in it. But really, it's kind of, again, this, this you know, we've got to, like, do the work on the boring stuff that's in the background that just simply starts to remove um, the greenhouse gases from our, from our systems. And they don't have to be this big public-facing thing. Uh, in fact, they probably shouldn't be. They should probably just be kind of industrial rules and car efficiency and so forth. And that's really kind of will really make a, a big difference. Those things that really transform the system. You know, trees are, are awesome. I've, a good friend of mine runs an NGO that, that, that plants uh, uh, millions of trees a year, but it, it's, it's only one part of it. Mm. So, so what are some of the impacts for political and economic actions that people can take to help what you're describing? So these sorts of standards that need to be rolled out within various industries. Is there anything that people can do if someone suddenly realizes, right, I need to change my life? I thought you'd never kind ask. Of like you did over time. <laughs> I was worried you'd never ask. Um, so really, uh, you can... Uh, it's really important to engage with with government, with the public process. You can, you know, the very minimal thing is vote. That you know, um, say why this issue matters to you, why you want to save future. Tell your friends that this is a priority. Uh, if a pollster calls your house, tell them it's a priority for you. Um, so really, kind of, and, and and not just federally. Look at all levels of government: your local town, your city government. Um, your state or provincial government and your federal, you, should, you need to be engaged at, at all those levels. Um, and really, if you want to go even further, like um, join a citizen's advisory body, um, you know, uh, write and, and, and call your legislators, show up at hearings and speak in support of solutions like transit system expansions, uh, neighborhood densification. Um, these kinds of meetings matter where, where people actually show up in person that that is seen to be having uh, political value as opposed to clicking like or signing an online petition those have almost zero political value in terms of changing things so um, mm. and if that's too much and you're too busy for that kind of level of engagement donate or join an organization that's working to effect this systemic change you know there's a few other things you could do. You could tell your financial advisor if you have retirement savings, you want to move your money uh, to reduce your exposure to carbon risk. That's how you could frame it, saying these companies have a lot of uh, uh, fossil fuels. Uh, their valuation is based on how much oil they can pump out of the ground or natural gas. And I don't want that because that, that's going to have to stop. So I want you to move my money somewhere else. Um, move your money to a credit union. Uh, you know, those are all kinds of things like that you can do. But the point is to is to engage at that level rather than at the level of individual lifestyle choices. That is not, in my mind, the productive place. And are there any specific organizations that you like that you see having a good impact with, with these sorts of actions? 
Wow. Um, the, the NRDC uh, does a really good job on this, the Natural Resources Defense Council. Uh, the Union of Concerned Scientists uh, does terrific work on this as well. So if you were to say what your biggest concern for the future mm-hmm. is, how might you answer? Well, I, I, I fear that the the current track we're on is going to cause a pretty large-scale uh, disruptions um, of our uh, you know, healthcare systems, of our social safety net, and so forth. I, I guess my biggest concern is that we'll feel overwhelmed at the point where we really need to buckle down and um, work together and bridge partisanship um, and, and, you know, that World War II mobilization thing that, that will be mm-hmm. just too overwhelmed by the circumstances of what's happening to, to, to move to that, um, that rapid uh, mobilization. So I'm concerned. I mean, that's one of my concerns uh, that we'll, we'll sort of instead of hunker down into survival mode, you know, both as individuals and as nations, and and we'll we'll see n- nationalism uh, dominate rather than, you know, the spirit of let's work together and and mm-hmm. and solve this. So I think that's my my biggest concern around this. And you had another couple. I'm kind of curious to open Pandora's box and ask what your others are. <laughs> oh, well, I'm concerned about AI and automation, um, mm. um, also displacing millions of jobs. Uh, so, you know, that could be a situation where just when we need people to really feel engaged and inspired, uh, you know, there, there may be whole sections of society that are, you know, unemployable or, or essentially economically irrelevant. And, and that will... Uh, there's no way of knowing where that would go, but it's not a good, you know, it's not going to help the situation. Let me just put it that way, yeah. um, because it's going to it's going to really put one of those stresses on the system that we're already grappling with, uh, you know, some of the impacts of climate change. And 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 yet that's it's kind of quietly marching along in the background. So that that concerns me uh, um, as well. We need to definitely address that proactively through policy before it uh, before it gets out of hand. Mm. So what vision would you say that you are working towards achieving in your ultimate fantasy of how well this can work out, given the restrictions that we that we have? So like a realistic utopian vision, <laughs> if such a thing exists. Yeah, no, it doesn't have to be utopian. Um, it, it, <laughs> I think I guess I'm working towards, if you're thinking about a vision, I'm working to support a society um, Again, at its fundamental, that's that's decoupled greenhouse gas uh, pollution from 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 growth, from opportunity, from creativity, like where we can really enjoy the good life. Um, you know, clean air, uh, green cities. Um, you know, a, a wide diversity of uh, you know eclectic communities. Um, you know, without all of the the things that we just sort of deal with as stress of everyday life right now, like traffic, for example. Uh, oh my God, uh, you know, traffic was brutal. Well, you are traffic. You know, mm. like if we if we can sort of move towards these solutions, so many of the benefits that come with them you know, health, health benefits, quality of life benefits um, are, are just, you know, that is the kind of the, the, the vision that I'm looking to create. It, it's almost like the climate benefits just come as they, they get pulled along by the train of these other things that people really can experience and feel that improve their, their life. So that, that's kind of the complete uh, package, really, where we've just, we've kind of just fixed that and we're gradually making our community is stronger, more resilient, 
um, and, and better places to live. So where we enjoy the good life like we do today, that the best aspects of that good life for today will still be with us uh, tomorrow if we've, if we've decarbonized uh, the economy. Mm. And what things do you think we might be most reluctant to let go of but would actually be really worthwhile letting go of? Well, um, I mean, air travel is a is is you mentioned earlier. Um, I I can't see a, a really logical path for you know air travel is growing at an astounding rate uh, right now, uh, and um, you know you know you in the U.S. the the all time high air travel volumes, you know um, over you know twenty seventeen to twenty eighteen I think air Passengers traffic increased 38 million uh, uh, flights, uh, individual bookings. So, you know, there's really no good way to address uh, zero carbon aviation, but there is high-speed rail, electrified, and I'm really interested and in, in energized by Hyperloop uh, technology um, as well, uh, which is, you know, essentially... Uh, very, very high speed uh, transport inside vacuum tubes mm. uh, that could crisscross the nation. And, and that is kind of the only uh, place where you could travel it with the speed and the convenience of, a, of, of an airline, uh, but without all the hassles uh, that, that come with it. So, so I think that there are always solutions to the things that we, I know, like, I do really want to let go of surviving a, a five-hour flight in cattle class across the... Like, <laughs> it's not something I want to let go of. What I want to hold on to is being able to see the people I love who happen to live far away. So yes. is there a solution that will allow me to keep doing that? In fact, I'll keep doing that and my quality of life will improve because I won't, you know, I won't have, uh, you know, some kind of awful leg vein syndrome or something, you know, <laughs> or, or, or suffer airline food or something. So, so to me, I always like take it and flip it on its head and, you know, what do you really want to hang on to? It's really important to yeah. you. And how can we deliver that without carbon? I do wonder because I have family spread all over the world and I've been trying to cut down on my flights and also paying for trees to offset the carbon emission and it's not far enough. But for transatlantic, do you think transatlantic flights will become a thing of the past? No, I don't think so. Um, you know, I, there's no reason you couldn't put a hyperloop under the ocean by way of Iceland, perhaps. Um, so mm. I, I don't, you know, I don't see that necessarily as a transatlantic travel will not end just because transatlantic flights uh, significantly mm. decline. Um, so I, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say goodbye and, you know, we're on the uh, hydrogen powered steamship, uh, you know, now, uh, <laughs> I, I don't think we're quite, you know, there yet. Certainly quite it's really. a, it, it's a big nut to crack and there needs to be policy change to allow that innovation to really, uh, take fire and, and, and start happening. So. I wonder if we're going to live in a world in which we're all sort of powered by green energy from China and hyperloops from China. Maybe, you know, who knows? Maybe this is going to be an unpredictable twist to the story that we end up being saved by a country that is not necessarily the yeah. one that we imagined we'd be safe by. Possibly. Well, I, th I mean, China, I, you know, I could, I could respond and say that China has, because it has invested so heavily in this, they've driven down the cost of uh, solar PV and wind technologies to... A level that was unheard of um, a, a decade ago, um, and so you know it's just by sheer uh, you know um, I'm sorry what's the word quantities of scale mm. you know they they're able to influence the global market so much that they've made 
those uh, solar panels in particular more accessible to uh, developing nations. Uh, and so there's, there's a lot of hope uh, to be found out there. Uh, and yes, there are always those sort of unexpected knock-on factors that uh, I'm hoping will work more in our favor than against us. Mm. Yes. Okay, so I know that we've talked about quite large systemic change, but just to round it off, I want to ask if there is a single action that people can take today as yeah. individuals to build a more resilient future, what would you encourage people to do? Just the one action. You know, I... <laughs> Yeah, one action is I would just, um, you know, at the most simplest level, you know, find your tribe. If, if you want to act, if you want this to change, connect with others who feel the same way. Um, and that's really as simple as, as, as it gets, you know, just don't be in your own bubble. There, there are lots of um, organizations, individuals, even at the neighborhood scale, at the community scale, I would just sort of dip your toe in that engagement to uh, to connect with others who feel the way you do and who are committed to uh, to change and to solutions. Brilliant. It's as simple as that. Okay. Well, thank you. I'm going to link to um, the Medium article that you wrote with the organizations that you mentioned and to your website, glaive.com, and to your LinkedIn profile. You're also on Twitter at underscore James Glaive. And then also, I didn't mention earlier, but I will put it in the show notes and include it here, um, the book that you wrote, Almost Green, How I Saved One Sixth of a Billionth of the Planet. Uh, I'll include a link for that as well. Is there anything else that you want to point people towards? No, you've, uh, I think, covered it all. Uh, James Glaive on Twitter is a, is a great way to, uh, to keep up. And I would love to hear uh, from your listeners about uh, uh, this conversation. And I uh, would love to be challenged and uh, um, hear about uh, solutions that people are working on. So I, I send out an open invitation to your audience to, uh, to, uh, to connect. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. To find out more about today's guest and the topics we explored, you can visit the show notes page at natalienahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating and you can join in the conversation with the hashtag Hive Podcast. Thanks again for listening and I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.